0: US UK joint exercises in the States. Who says there's no special relationship? Russia, the big question should we be frightened of Putin? Britain's nuclear deterrent, the report no one wants published. Syria, the barrel bombs of chlorine that are killing women and children. And the election do the voters really care about defence spending? Early this week, more than 2,000 British and American troops took part in a massive parachute jump in the United States. It was part of the Joint Operational Access exercise known as JOAX, which has allowed 16 Air Assault Brigade to practice rapid reaction alongside the 82nd Airborne Division. Well, Tim Cooper has been watching the exercise at Fort Bragg in North Carolina.
1: Well, I'll call your names an out. You've got a peeling. Come on, left will start with your kit. Route that thumb through the
2: cable loop from top to bottom.
1: British and American voices talking to British and American personnel. Common theme here on Joax, Both having equal weight in the decisions and operations undertaken on this exercise. Land. This place is called the Green Ramp, where they practice the skills and drills of parachuting. For the last month, Colchester Bay's 16 Air Assault Brigade, spearheaded by 3 Para, have been working alongside 82nd Airborne. By the time I arrived to watch, they'd become close colleagues. Private Sean Robinson from 3 Para. Well, most of the stuff we've done with the Americans is, is jumping.
3: Um, they, they do a lot more of it than us, it seems to be. Their, their sort of drills are a lot more smoother, so it's been good good practice for us. Um, differences being with us, we jump with mortar kit all the time. Um, which is something that's new to them. So, um, yeah, it's been good. We've been bouncing off each other, sort of picking up different skills, really. It's been, yeah, been educational.
4: Go!
5: I think they're a little bit more organized than us sometimes, but, you know, it might be just because they're a little bit smaller group here and we're still that lar- large entity. But, um,. Some of the call signs are different. You know, talking on the radio is always going to be, it's always a little bit of a challenge. It's um,
3: mostly because sometimes you can't even understand people in English if they're speaking to you. And then you add the accent in from both sides and it's like, what, what, what? what?
1: Joe X has been two years in the making. Back then, in a small way, 16 Air Assault began their association with their American counterparts. But what's it all about? Well, it's about the future. The U.S. government stated that it's highly unlikely they'll launch a future operation by themselves. They think it'll be a coalition. 82nd Airborne are their rapid reaction force, able to deploy certain elements anywhere within 19 hours. 16 Air Assault do the same for the British. JOAX has been about enabling them to do it together at some point in the future if the world situation dictates. Therefore, they've been getting themselves acquainted through this exercise the high point of which was the massive 2,100-person parachute drop conducted in darkness. Over the following days, further missions on the ground and in the air. So what's the feedback? How's it gone? Colonel Graham Livingston is Deputy Commander, 16 Air Assault Brigade.
3: Looking back over the last week, we've actually achieved... Um, some really, really significant activity, both from an interoperability perspective with the Americans, of course, uh, but also from our own perspective, in that we have now jumped at the battle group level, uh, something that we haven't done for um, some time, uh, given the commitments we've had to both Iraq and Afghanistan over the last decade or so. So this has been a significant milestone.
1: British and American forces have worked together for years. Afghanistan and Iraq are prime examples. The difference here, though, is that this force is totally integrated. They jump out of planes, fight, plan and react together. A foretaste of the future? Well, perhaps. Tim Cooper for SIPREP. North Carolina.
0: Well, BFPS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee is with me and has been listening to that reporter. Christopher, let's talk about the special relationship, because a report out in the United States this week has said Britain isn't important to America, is it?
4: Well, we just heard they're operating together. They're doing an exercise together. It's a major exercise together. It, would, uh, it has great political as well as military significance. The special relationship really started in World War II. Churchill spent so much time, even when he was terribly ill, flying to keep that special relationship going with Eisenhower. Mac-Millan, Prime Minister Macmillan did it. Um, Prime Minister Callaghan wasn't interested in it, actually. didn't believe um, that it was important. Prime Minister Thatcher did. And the basis of it is, is this. Britain has not a special position with America. But when it's necessary, the two sides come together. That is the relationship.
0: OK, well, RAF typhoons were scrambled again this week to keep watch on Russian bombers flying off the British coast. It happened on the same day three Russian ships were monitored by the frigate HMS Argyle as they passed through the English Channel. A little earlier, I spoke to the BBC's diplomatic correspondent,
2: Bridget Kendall. It's probably not entirely a coincidence, and probably there is an element of, if not provocation, at least demonstrative uh, intention by the Russians. But one has to be aware that this is part of a pattern. They've been doing this regularly. And it's not just actually in the last year since the conflict with NATO over. Ukraine emerged they've been doing it for several years and military experts say one of the reasons they're doing it is to test their own readiness and uh, after the Soviet Union uh, when everything was in collapse and the military was very run down they weren't doing these sorts of exercises at all Uh, they activated them in the last few years and It may also be the case that we are simply paying more notice to them because we are aware of this conflict. But that said, in the Baltic region, not so much off the coast of Britain, uh, but in the Baltic region, they do say that uh, in the last year the number of these cases has gone up by about three times. The Russians, I should say, always make the point that what they do is entirely legal and they're not straying into anybody else's waters or airspace and so they are within their international rights, which is correct. Now, you just got
0: back from Russia and you're reporting for the BBC on, on life for ordinary Russians under Western sanctions. What impression did you get and what did you get about what they think
2: about the West, the ordinary people on the street? Well, it's quite interesting. The, the, the first thing is that there is very much an economic downturn and it has shocked people and affected their ordinary lives. It's not just about sanctions. It's partly about sanctions which has affected business confidence and internal investment and have led to Russian counter-sanctions which have banned EU food and so all the food in the shops has gone up. Inflation in March was nearly 17%. But also the drop in oil prices at the end of last year led to a bit of a panic with the ruble and the ruble slid and therefore it's worth less internationally and that also led to huge inflation but also a lot of businesses were in a lot of trouble. We met one man whose business had crashed by 70% and other people who said even in the government sector jobs weren't safe, they were being slashed by 10% in each sector, except in the defence sector where they're still keeping spending up. So everybody's feeling the pain and they're worried. There isn't much of a social safety net in Russia. Uh, Pensioners do alright, their pensions uh, I think they're index linked, but if anyone else loses their job, then they're left a bit high and dry, and we found, especially in the provinces, people felt pretty scared, because one woman said to us, a lot of men in this town, when the factories closed, went to Moscow for jobs, but now those jobs are closing, and it's the people who aren't Muscovites who are losing them, they're coming home, what are they going to do? But the interesting thing is, that they're not blaming their own government, they are tending to follow the line that they here on Russian television and blaming Western sanctions. And what's interesting about that is that in a way you could say Western sanctions are giving President Putin an alibi. And just on the international stage, President
0: Putin has lifted a ban on delivering an anti-missile rocket system to Iran. What more can you tell us
2: about that and its significance? Well, actually, this morning, uh, President Putin is having a huge, long question and answer session live on television with the Russian people. Uh, And already this morning so far, this question has come up. Why have you agreed to uh, sell these Uh, these missiles to Iran won't that just inflame an already very volatile situation in the Middle East particularly when you think about what's happening in Yemen and he said well no we follow what's going uh, very closely we think these are just defensive weapons and that Iran deserves rewarding they've been very flexible in the nuclear talks he made it clear that they wouldn't be delivered until after those talks are concluded if indeed they are in June and he also said that it's not illegal for Russia to do this these uh, were never part of the UN sanctions against Iran. They were unilaterally withheld by Russia. Uh, I understand it was after pressure from Israel, but he doesn't think that if they're sold to Iran that they would be a threat to Israel. Of course it's a matter, matter of trust, really, from the West's point of view. Do they think that President Putin is doing this out of good faith, or is he trying to find yet another thing where there would be a point of tension with the West? That was BBC's Bridget
0: Kendall speaking to me earlier. Uh, Christopher, um Iran deserves rewarding by Russia.
4: This goes back to, goes back five, six years. Russia was about to sell uh, missiles, air defence missiles called S-300s. And in fact, the Americans, using the Israelis, said, don't do that. If we do that, we'll not get the support for sanctions within the United Nations. And so Russia actually backed off the sale, but the sale... Stayed on the board. And in fact, the Iranians took the Russians to court for breach of contract.
0: And, and as far as the West concerned, how worried will they be about this?
4: Uh, I don't think they'll be much worried at all, because um, if, if, as long as the deal... It's another uh, sort of, I suppose, a screw to get the deal, which is supposed to take place June, June the 30th. Um, and 're saying to the Iranians, look, we're not kidding. If you don't sign the deal... Um, Then we will go back to full sanctions. And what's important about all this is a man called Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. He is the spiritual head of Iran. Forget Mm. the politicians. He said that deal may not go through. Just
0: in terms of these movements by Russian ships in the vicinity of the British coast. um, Bridget there is talking about uh, them possibly testing their own capabilities. What else might they be trying to do, do you think?
4: Do you know, there are two ships, right? There's the Admiral Kuznetsov, which is a big carrier. Right, and then there's the, there's the Mosque, which is a, a sort of battle cruiser. So when the um, the Admiral Kuznetsov came along a couple of weeks ago, the Navy sent out the Royal Navy sent out a Type 45. Now the idea is is the probably the best destroyer in the world at the moment, and the Russians wanted to know about it. Mm. Now you think, well, all they've got to do is go along to Portsmouth and have a look at one alongside, long except for one thing: when a ship goes along is at sea it switches on its radars. And what the Russians want to know is what their radar frequencies are, and so they can therefore, if necessary, jam them in wartime.
0: SITREP with Kate Still to come health, education and the economy, stupid. Why voters don't care about defence. This is BFBS SITREP. Let's turn to Syria now. Is President Assad still using chlorine and cyanide in attacks against his own people? Chemical weapons inspectors have been investigating new attacks in the country, and we can talk now to one of them now. Hamish de Breton-Gordon was a commanding officer at the UK's Joint Chemical, Biological, Radiological Nuclear Regiment and is now director of Avon Protection, a company specialising in CBRN. Good to speak to you today, Hamish. Where did you go and what did you find?
3: Yeah, good afternoon, Kate. Uh, delight to uh, speak to BFBS. Um, last week, I was uh, down in in Turkey, very near the Syrian border. Um, I've been involved with various charities, um, OSM and Syria Relief, a UK charity, uh, supporting civilians and the medical fraternity in Syria in their uh, combat against the use of chemical weapons, how to treat the casualties, and also training civilians how to survive. As part of this as well, I've been training a group of people to collect samples from the chemical attacks, which uh, can be presented to the UN and also used in the International Criminal Court in future. So uh, down on the border last week, and I'll be fairly um, vague of where I was because we had a lot of people who came out of Syria um, to give us these samples and subsequently are back there, um, to really test some samples from a from an attack in particular, a town called Saramin in Idlib province, where on the 16th of March, three chlorine barrel bombs were dropped. And one of them dropped on a house and it killed a complete family, a grandmother, a mother and father, and three children. And they died from chlorine poisoning. And uh, what we're trying to do is to present this information to the United Nations. And today, Samantha Powell, the UN ambassador to the UN, and uh, Human Rights Watch are trying to persuade the P5 that something really needs to be done and the UN did in November uh, last year say any further use of chemical weapons and chlorine would create a reaction from the UN and we're hoping that the UN, the P5 will decide to do so, something in my, in my opinion something like a no-fly zone to prevent this happening in future These
0: samples that you've you obtained how conclusive are they?
3: Well the ones I, I was given a, a, a number and uh, the chain of evidence is always key to make sure that we know exactly where they came from. But I did train the people who took them. And to me, the chain of evidence was excellent. Um, some of the samples I couldn't test because I didn't have the right equipment. But the ones I tested uh, did prove positive for chlorine. And these were on the, the village of Salamine, as I said, on the 16th of March, um, just a few weeks ago. There are a number of others. Um, From other places but without the same provenance but Mm. with you know I can say with 100% certainty that chlorine barrel bombs were dropped on Sarmine on the 16th of March 2015 without a shadow of a doubt and the regime um, are responsible for that.
0: And just just remind us what chlorine actually does
3: Well chlorine is a choking agent, it was the first chemical weapon used uh, in, in mass quantities, in fact 100 years ago next Wednesday on the second battle of Yip, um and it killed 4,000 people on the day um, and but was not used thereafter because actually chlorine is not very toxic and the challenge for people in Syria and Iraq, I was in Iraq only two weeks ago advising the Iraqi security forces because Islamic State are using chlorine ieds improvise explosive devices there is that chlorine is readily available um, you're allowed to own 90 tons of it in the uk without a license for instance and it has many commercial uses but in syria in particular and in iraq it's been used as a chemical weapon and it is illegal mm. as far as the chemical weapons convention goes
0: christopher lee uh, of course president assad is still denying he's using chemical weapons
4: Yes, he is. And at one time he was saying he wasn't going to, and he never had done. Think to remember about chemical uh, chlorine. Chlorine is heavier than air. And so when families get into the basements, the chlorine follows them down. Mm.
0: How likely do you think it is that this kind of evidence is going to bring some kind of results from the international community, Christopher?
4: The international community is inevitably going to show President Assad as a, a war criminal. Therefore, in theory, he could be arraigned at the International Criminal Court. In warfare, you judge the capabilities of an army, uh, its intentions, and the countermeasures to what it's doing. There is another, and that's a complex moral distinctions within the forces and within armies. And people say, oh, well, nothing will ever happen. Just remember in the Balkans, Milosevic, Karadzic, Miladic were judged to be international criminals and they were taken to the international court. Uh, President Assad is not out of the woods yet.
0: Hamish hey, de Bretton gordon how much more evidence do you need and how much further will you be going?
3: Well, we will continue to pursue this. I think Krista is absolutely right. His point about it being heavier than there. The family died in their cellar. Um, they thought they were sheltering from, a, from a, a normal bombardment. The same thing happened in Halabja 27 years ago. Um, but again chris right we 've got to keep up the evidence, and I think we 're all you know the fact that some of the Bosnian generals are now facing the international criminal court what i 've tried to impress on people in Syria is that Eventually, mm. we will bring these people to book. And you can only do it yeah. um, by collecting the evidence and presenting it in a usable format. And,
0: and Hamish, you were mentioning those people that you don't want to identify who've brought that evidence to you. Just tell us, what kind of conditions are they living in and what kind of risks are they running themselves?
3: Well, on condition- I, I, I have been in Syria a number of times, but admittedly not for a couple of months. But uh, when I was there in September last year, 70% of the country is flattened There are 300,000 dead at least, 500,000 missing, very little electricity, food or water, a complete generation of children are missing their education. So it is desperate. Those who can leave Syria have left Syria, but there are some very brave people, like the people that I deal with, mainly in the medical community, who've stayed behind to treat those left behind. And I think anything we can do to support some of the the charities I've mentioned, Syria Relief, um, OSM and of course Human Rights Watch and others Save the Children ICRC who are trying to get medication and supplies to these people should be done because the country you know trying to explain to other uh, other soldiers what Syria is like having done many tours in Afghanistan Iraq myself I, I tell my colleagues think of those places times of complexity mm-hmm. and awfulness by two or three and you've got Syria and don't forget, of course, Syria is but a three-hour flight from the UK.
0: Hamish de bretton gordon thank you for your time today. The first major defence document to be given to the new Prime Minister will be a report on the management of the UK's nuclear deterrent. Uh, Christopher, please explain.
4: Um, last year, uh, the oldest of Britain's four uh, Trident submarines, the ones that carry the... Uh, uh, submarine-launched ballistic missiles, had to return to port, malfunction in the reactor. There was an an inquiry started, and this included uh, uh, Sir Stuart Peach, the vice chief of the defense staff, and John Thompson, the civilian equivalent. Um, And they said, well, why has this happened? And then they started looking at a bigger picture. And the bigger picture involves one of the defense issues in the election, and that is the renewal of Trident and they said in the report which will go to the Prime Minister's desk in the first week of of the new government that the structure of the organisation that if anything else had to replace Trident is wrong it involves government, it involves uh, international relations with for example America, it involves uh, British companies and the structure of the organisation around that involves too many people, it is a mess. Mm. And the documents I've seen say it is a, actually a mess. They're proposing a new command for the Prime Minister to authorise, and this command is the nuclear command. It'll involve Americans as well, 25,000 people, equivalent to two divisions, and it would cost a fortune, but then the replacement for Trident is £25 billion. Pounds.
0: Well, most of Britain's political parties launched their manifestos this week, so what have they been saying about defence? BFBS reporter James Hurst has been having a good read of it all and joins us now from Westminster. Hi, James. Um, Hi. We'll talk in a minute about the differences between the parties on defence, but first of all, what's the same?
5: Well, if you look at the uh, Labour, Liberal, Democrat and Conservative manifestos, the the three traditional big parties in Westminster, uh, actually... uh, The core plan is very much the same, Uh, and and more to the point, the unanswered questions. There's no commitment from any of them to this NATO 2% of GDP spending on defence. They won't say how much they will or won't spend on defence. They all promise a defence review, and it's defence and spending review where the important decisions will be taken under those parties. They've kicked those difficult decisions into the long grass.
0: Well, let's look at the separate parties now, starting with Labour.
5: Uh, yeah, I think the important thing in their manifesto, given the, the the political spat the week before, is their commitment to, in their words, maintain a minimum, credible, independent nuclear capability delivered through continuous at-sea deterrent. That's not a promise for the like, like-for-like replacement of Trident. What they explain it as, we'll do like for like if that's the only way to do it and that's the cheapest way to do it. Nothing about the size of the regular armed forces. Uh, there was a, a, a pledge to carry on, though, for example, the fight against Islamic State. Ned Miliband, as he launched his manifesto, he was looking both to address Labour's past and also cast himself as someone prepared to use military power responsibly.
1: You know, I pledged to this party in the country when I became leader we would learn the lessons of the 2003 Iraq war, and we have. We do not seek to solve the problems of the world on our own, but we will engage with the world. We will continue the fight against ISIS in partnership with our allies in the region and the world.
0: And the Conservatives.
5: Well, uh, again, a restatement of no cuts to the regular armed forces. Uh, The surprise in there for me was there's a restated commitment in the manifesto to continue to grow the reserves to 35,000 people. I think some people thought that might be abandoned. Uh, Also, the commitment to uh, Trident, they say, with four... Submarines, same so like for like. Uh, David Cameron at his launch was pushed on this NATO two percent question. The political editor of the Sun said, "If you think
1: it's unaffordable, why don't you just say so now?" This was his reply. First of all, to a full replic- replacement for Trident, the ultimate insurance policy for Britain. Second of all, we say that we will not have further reductions in the regular size of our regular armed forces. And third, and I think most crucially, because our armed forces and those wanting to join want to know about what will be available. The equipment budget of £160 billion over the next decade is guaranteed with an inflation-busting increase in that.
0: OK, James, what about the Liberal Democrats?
5: So uh, they launched yesterday. Um, uh, it's not actually written in their manifesto, but Nick Clegg and Paddy Ashdown told us the Lib Dems don't want to see smaller regular armed forces. But they do abandon the pledge to grow the reserves. They say it's not working. Uh, focus on building them at their current size, training them better. Uh, they, as we long know, want a smaller, cheaper replacement for Trident. Uh, but also, their interesting one is they want to uh, put defence into a wider, overall Whitehall security budget. Nick Clegg explained that.
1: All the sort of pots and silos in Whitehall have lots of money which help the defence of our nation, but they're put in sort of separate silos. And what the Liberal Democrats will do, and it's included in today's manifesto, is bring all that together into a consolidated defence budget, which brings together intelligence, um, foreign policy spending, which which enhances our defence, and of course traditional defence spending as well.
0: And you kept James...
5: Now they uh, do sit quite differently from the from the other manifestos. They have said not only that they'll commit to two percent of uh, GDP spending on defence, but they say in time they will ex- exceed that substantially. They promise to get back to the spending levels in terms of GDP percentage uh, pre the SDSR uh, they're not promising a defence review per se but they express reservations about the, the carrier's plans and specifically Joint Strike Fighter and they say they'll look again at the possibility of a, a different non-jump jet so they're talking again about going back to maybe going back to this idea of cats and traps they do support Trident renewal there's been a lot of equivocation about this in the past uh, but Nigel Farage clearly sees his commitment to defence to defence spending as something that sets him apart from the other parties The missing component of this election campaign has been an absence of debate about foreign affairs and a very reluctant debate from many others about defence. UKIP will continue to urge caution before we go to war. But we also recognise we're living in a very unstable world in which there are genuine threats.
0: And, James, what about the other smaller parties?
5: Uh, so we also had the Green Party manifesto yesterday. I mean, they, they, they don't touch in theirs on defence spending or the detail of the armed forces. They're, somebody described it as being like a philosophical essay. But they, they, they talk about moving towards a policy of defensive defence and focusing on conflict prevention. We also uh, a week or so ago, actually more than a week ago had uh, the manifesto from Plaid Cymru. Uh, They also focus on diplomacy and peacekeeping. They also want trident scrap like the Greens. They want more Welsh army units in Wales. The one uh, important big manifesto we're still waiting for, the Scottish National Party. And Last time I I, I checked, still don't have a date for that, but (sighs) they've only got until the 7th of May.
0: Really can't wait to see that one. Uh, James Hurst, thank you very much for that. Uh, Christopher Lee, um, now we've heard all of these statements in these manifestos, do you think it's really going to have much sway with the voter and what they're saying on defence?
4: If you look at the um, the seven polling organisations at the moment, not, they, not one of them says that defence is going to have any uh, effect on the voting, except in areas like Barrow and Furness, which are involved with defence industries. And interestingly, the only times that defence has become Uh, has come since 1951 election Mm -hmm. has become an issue in certain parts when it's been an industrial issue and not a question of foreign policy. Do you think it's right? Uh, they're partly right because um, it's one of those things which you leave to government because they, it, it, you can't know what you can't vote on something which you don't know about. And at the moment, we don't know about foreign policy decisions of any new government. We certainly don't know about the defence review. And when we get into this nonsense about two percent, the treasury has already—it is nonsense. Well, the, the treasury has already decided that having a two percent benchmark is nonsense now mm. and I noticed that they were saying uh, that uh, UKIP was saying that they would go back to the original sort of 3% that it was some time ago, it's never three, been 3% under under the NATO guidelines anyway
0: mm. well, we'll be looking at all of these issues in more depth in a special radio and television broadcast next Friday the 24th of April, SITREP is joining up with Forces TV and the Royal United Services Institute for the 2015 Defence Election Debate You can hear it here on BFBS at 6pm next Friday, 7pm if if you're listening on BFBS Radio 2 and you can watch it at the same time on Forces TV. Join us now with your questions on Twitter by using the hashtag Defence Debate. Uh, Christopher, very briefly, one thing to look forward to next week?
4: The look forward to next week is going to be in look forward to Iran because the grand Ayatollah could actually put the kibosh on the whole nuclear agreement. All and right. only Israel will app- applaud that.
0: And that is all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our contributors and, of course, our defence analyst, you, Christopher Lee. Do keep your comments coming on Twitter. We are at BFBSitRep. Thanks very much for listening. Speak to you again this time next week. Bye-bye for now. News. News. Sports. Sports. And music. Music. For the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2.